Our text today is uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 21 to 40. Today we come to the sixth and last of a brief series of studies in the Gospel of Luke uh, surrounding the announcement and birth of Jesus. The first five consisted of angelic announcements, miraculous births, songs of praise regarding them. Today's text looks back on all of those and asks respectfully, So what? What was the significance of the birth of this child? The stories are interesting, but why all this attention from heaven and earth? Because Luke is not merely recording history, he's convinced and wants to convince us that this birth was vitally important. The Gospel writers were painters, painting the portrait of Jesus Christ. So, considering our text this morning, I want to ask and answer the question, how does Luke present Jesus in the text that has been set before us? What is so significant about the one whom Luke has spent the first chapter and a half of his Gospel arousing our interest in, or whetting our appetite for, with stories of angelic announcements and miraculous births. To set the stage, I want to begin by looking briefly at the two new characters that Luke introduces us to. They're both introduced, at least partially, for the same reason. First, in verse 36, we read of Anna, a prophetess, an old woman as we meet her. She's described in verse 37 as a widow until she was 84. Or an equally acceptable translation, and possibly you see that as a footnote in your Bible, as a widow for 84 years, making her somewhat over 100 years old. I'll leave you to do the math. She did not depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. She didn't, act, she didn't actually live in the temple, no one, least of all a woman, permanently resided in the temple. One commentator uh, has said, this is to be understood of constant attendance at the temple services rather than actual residence within the temple precincts. Luke's point is that for most of her adult life, this centenarian had put herself in the way of the scriptures and the place where she could hear them read daily, learn from them, and respond devoutly with fasting and prayer. The result of this familiarity with the scriptures and the promises of God found in them, we find her waiting and longing for the redemption of Jerusalem. That's the first new personality, Anna. The second is Simeon, whom we'll come to in a moment. Luke makes five broad brushstrokes in his portrait, and he focuses on five vital aspects uh, in his portrait of Jesus. The first thing Luke tells us is that Jesus is the servant of the law. That's the law of Moses. Six times in this passage, five times explicitly and once implicitly, he refers not only to the law of Moses, but to the obedience and the submission to the law of Moses that was experienced by himself, the baby Jesus, and his parents, Joseph and Mary. So let's look at them together. First, verse 21 at the end of day eight days when he was circumcised, or as the NIV puts it, on the eighth day when it was time to circumcise him. Where does this ritual come from, and who said it, it was time? Answer, the law of Moses. So there's the implicit reference to the law. The remaining five are explicit. You may have noticed them as the passage was read for us. 
Move on in the text with me to the beginning of verse 22. When the time for their purification after the birth of Moses was after the birth of Jesus was complete, according to the law of Moses, we won't turn to it, but if you're taking notes, you might hear reference Leviticus chapter 12. Thirdly, end of verse 22. They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, that every male who opens the womb shall be consecrated or called holy to the Lord. Fourthly, verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Then we jump to verse 27. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. And then the sixth example, we jump down to verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, which is the law of Moses, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. Now friends, if you've never come across that before, don't you think it's rather remarkable? Doesn't it form questions in your mind that the baby Jesus was circumcised and named according to the law? That he brought into the temple, he's brought into the temple after the time of purification according to the law, that he's presented to the Lord according to the law, consecrated according to the law, and so on and so on. Why this repetition? Why this emphasis? Why this insistence that in every particular the baby Jesus was submissive and obedient to the law of God through the law of Moses? I mean, does it matter, you might ask? <clears throat> Surely this is excessive detail. What does this have to do with Christmas? Why in, drag in all these references to the law of Moses and the law of the Lord? Well, thanks for asking those questions. Uh, the Apostle Paul gives us the answer. Indeed, it's very probable that Luke got his answer from Paul, because you know, don't you, that they were friends. And Luke was Paul's constant companion. And Luke <clears throat> seems to have gotten his theology from Paul. So it is in something that Paul wrote that we get an answer. And if you've been here for the past few months, you'll know the answer. But to refresh your thinking, keep one finger in Luke chapter 2 and flip over in your Bible to the letter of Paul to the Galatians, chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come in the purpose and providence of God, God sent forth his Son on Christmas Day, born of woman, are you ready for this? Born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Remember that? So we have Luke the historian writing probably 75 years after the birth of Christ, and perhaps 25 to 30 years after Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians. And in that time, Luke has learned a thing or two about the significance of Jesus. So Jesus was born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law. How did he do that? How did he redeem those who were under the law in the sense that they had broken the law and the judgment of God was upon them because of their law-breaking? Well, by now you know Galatians well enough, don't you? So you know that the answer to that question comes in the previous chapter. In chapter 3, verse 13, we read, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That is to say, Jesus delivered us from the curse of the law, from the judgment which the law pronounces on all those who break it, and Christ has redeemed us from that curse and judgment by becoming a curse in our place. 
and bearing in his own innocent person the judgment that you and I deserve. But, and this is the point, if Jesus was to redeem lawbreakers from the judgment of God, he couldn't be a lawbreaker himself. He was going, if he was going to redeem lawbreakers, first he must obey the law himself in perfect law-abiding righteousness, and secondly, he must bear our law-breaking and its condemnation on the cross. So you see, all this submission and obedience to the law was necessary for our salvation. And Luke is very concerned that we should understand this. Jesus had no sin of his own for which to atone, and he lived a life, lived a life of perfect, law-abiding righteousness. Well, that's the first thing Luke points out. Jesus is introduced to us here as the, as the obedient servant of the law, in order that he might redeem us who were lawbreakers. That's one of the themes of his gospel. Now, secondly, Luke introduces Jesus as the fulfillment of prophecy. And it's here that Luke introduces us to our second rather fascinating character named Simeon. Verse 25, we read, He lived in Jerusalem. He was righteous in his behavior toward men. He was devout in his reverence before God. And he was waiting, waiting, waiting for the consolation of Israel. That is to say, Simeon was a student of the Old Testament, and he knew very well from the promises of the Old Testament scriptures that the day was coming when God would console or comfort his people. Perhaps like me, you like to listen to a recording or attend a concert presentation of Handel's Messiah during Advent. If so, you'll know the opening tenor aria, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. A, a direct quotation of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 written some 700 years before the birth of Christ. And there are many passages in the Old Testament promises that one day God would come to re the rescue of his people. God would have mercy on his people. God would bring comfort and redemption and consolation to his people. What does all that mean? It means that one day God was going to send the Messiah, the Messianic King, the Lord's anointed, who would then set up his kingdom an everlasting kingdom, a universal kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness and a kingdom of peace. And so God would comfort or console his people by the sending of the Messiah. Now all that Simeon knew very well through his knowledge of the scriptures. And the Holy Spirit had told him that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. This is in verse 26. The Lord's anointed, the Messiah. So Simeon was waiting and watching for that day. He believed the promise of God, and he wasn't going to die until that day arrived. So you see, Luke and Simeon were quite clear. Jesus of Nazareth, in their conviction, was the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. And all the prophetic testimony of the Old Testament converged on the person of Jesus. It's when Jesus came that the new age broke in and the kingdom of God had come. Now thirdly, he is the salvation of God. Verse 27, And he, that is Simeon, came in his spirit into the temple. And at the same moment, we read in the middle of verse 27, the parents, Joseph and Mary, brought the child Jesus into the temple. And they arrived at exactly the same moment by the providence and purpose of God in the temple. 
And what happened when they met in the temple? Well, what happened was this. The Holy Spirit whispered in Simeon's ear, This is he. This baby is the one you've been waiting for. So when Simeon was persuaded that the baby was the one he was waiting for, in verse 28, as a result of his meditation on the scriptures, he took him, that is Jesus, up in his arms. Simeon took the child out of Mary's arms, into his own arms. He then praised God for the gift of Jesus, the Lord's Christ, and he pronounced himself ready to die. He said, Lord, now you can dismiss your servant. You've fulfilled your promise. My bucket list is complete because my eyes have seen what you promised they would see, your salvation. There's nothing left to live for. That's all in verse, verses 29 and 30. So let's be clear what happened. Simeon had actually seen a six-week-old baby. That's all his outward eyes have seen, a helpless infant child. But what he said he had seen was the salvation of God because the baby was the one sent by God to be the Savior of the world. Remember the angel's announcement to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1? You will call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. That's what the name Jesus means. Well, this word salvation is central to the entire story of the Bible. It is a word that has fallen out of favor in modern discourse. But if you don't like the word salvation, try freedom instead. Freedom. Freedom from the just judgment of God upon our sin and upon all evil, wherever it is. Freedom from guilt and freedom from a guilty conscience. Freedom from death and from the fear of death. Freedom is what he came to bring and is the meaning of salvation. It was to secure this that Jesus Christ was born into the world, that he lived a perfect life of righteousness and love, that he went to the cross to die in our place, and was resurrected to prove the satisfactoriness of his death. Simeon was right when he said, looking at this little baby, my eyes have seen your salvation, your deliverance, the one you sent into the world to set us free. So Jesus is introduced by Luke as first the servant of the law, second the fulfillment of prophecy, and thirdly as the salvation of God. Now, fourthly, he is introduced as the light of the nations. So we go back to verse 30. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Peoples. That's deliberately plural, as translated in the ESV. And God has prepared this salvation in Jesus in the sight of the nations, or the Gentiles. It's the same word. You see, as far as the Jews were concerned, the entire population of the earth was divided into two peoples, or people groups. Jews, on the one hand, God's chosen people, and all the rest. The great unwashed, the nations, the Gentiles. But Jesus came to be the Savior of the world. The author of the Christmas Carol got it right when he penned joy to the world. Not joy to just a few, but joy to the whole world. It's in the sight of all the nations that God has prepared this great salvation. Verse 32, he prepared him to be a light. For what purpose did the dark world need the light? Well, partly for revelation to the Gentiles, the nations, and partly for glory to his people Israel. So Israel and the nations, the people of God and the Gentile peoples, were to be equal beneficiaries 
of Jesus Christ and his salvation. Instructed from the scriptures, Simeon understood very well both that Jesus was the salvation of God and that God had prepared this salvation for all the peoples or the nations of the earth. That is a worldwide offer of salvation by God in, in and through the name of Jesus to all the nations, including Israel. So no wonder, verse 33, the child's father and mother were amazed at what Simeon had said about him. Because while Mary and Joseph were recipients of angelic announcements regarding the miraculous birth of this child, well, look back at uh, a page at uh, Luke 1, uh, verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, a Jewish girl, daughter of Israel, for you have found favor with God, the God of Israel. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, or in Hebrew, Joshua, like the Israelite hero who had brought his people into the promised land. He, that is Jesus, will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, that is to say, the God of Israel. And the Lord God of Israel will give to him the throne of his father David, king of Israel. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, who was renamed Israel and father of the nation, forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Tell me, did you hear the word Gentiles in there anywhere? Neither did Mary. Neither did Matthew in the Angelica, or, or Joseph in the angelical announcements to him in Matthew chapter 1. Neither Joseph nor Mary had been given any information that would lead them to believe Gentiles would be participants in the Messiah's reign. I picture Mary and Joseph when they hear this prophecy of Simeon about Jesus being alike to the Gentiles, that they looked at each other and their jaws dropped. They were stunned. What? What has this miraculous Jewish birth got to do with the Gentiles? Isn't he the one who was to come and save us from our enemies, the Gentiles? Well, it's very significant that Luke should record this incident right at the beginning of his gospel. Because Luke, you know, was a Gentile. All the other authors of the New Testament were Jewish. Luke was the only Gentile author and contributor to the New Testament. And he contributed more to the New Testament than any other writer. And the dominant theme of Luke's two-volume work on the origins of Christianity, namely the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, is that Jesus came to be the Savior of all, the whole world. He came to be everybody's Savior, to be the Savior of men and women, Savior of adults and children, of the healthy and the sick, of the reputable and the disreputable, of the rich and the poor, educated and uneducated, religious and irreligious, and the Savior of Jews and Gentiles, and the halfway house between them, the Samaritans. So are you with me so far? Luke presents Jesus as the servant of the law, the fulfillment of prophecy, the salvation of God, the light of the Gentiles, and now fifthly and lastly, the judge of the world. Because after his very poetic song that we call in Latin Nunc Dimittis, that Simeon either recited or sang, he now addresses Mary in prose. And this may be the second surprise for Mary. Because it's not the joyous good news of the angels. Simeon begins in verse 34, This child 
This baby is appointed, or destined one day, to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. That is to say, he will divide the Jewish people. Some will reject him, and by their rejection will fall. Others will accept him, and put their trust in him, and through faith will rise and be exalted to salvation. Now, there may be more to this statement than meets the eye in our English translations. Because the word translated here, rising, is in every other instance in the New Testament translated resurrection. So Simeon here hints at the glorious future destined for those who put their trust in Jesus, even though the concept of resurrection will not be taught or experienced by Jesus until some 30 years in the future. So Jesus will be, in a way, a divisive as well as a uniting influence in the human community. End of verse 34. He will be a sign that is opposed, or literally spoken against, because many will reject him, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce Mary's soul as well. So that is Jesus, the cause of division. The secret thoughts of people's hearts are revealed by Jesus Christ, because people ally themselves either for him or against him. And as they ally themselves for him or against him, so the secret attitudes of their hearts are revealed. So this prophecy that is given here, uh, Luke shows in the rest of his gospel to have in fact come true. For the beginning of, uh, for the meaning of judgment, uh, crisis, uh, the Greek word, or crisis in English, uh, the judgment literally means the separating, as when shepherds separate sheep from goats, or the farmer separates the wheat from the tares or the chaff. Judgment is a sifting, separating process. And God separates according to our separating of ourselves by the choices we make as to whether we will ally ourselves for him or against him. And the prophecy proved accurate. Mary's son was rejected by her own people. A sword did pierce her own heart in the tremendous anguish of watching the crucifixion of this, her son, and still today the cross separates people. For some people, the cross on which he died is the foundation stone on which we build our lives. For others, he's not a foundation stone at all, but a stone over which they stumble. The judgment of the world through Christ. Well, let me recapitulate for a moment and then conclude. Here is Luke's multicolored portrait of a six-week-old baby. It's amazing, isn't it? All this encapsulated in that baby boy. He's the servant of the law, living in perfect obedience to the law of God, and the fulfillment of prophecy, being the one himself in whom God's promises have come true. He's the salvation of God, because through his birth, life, death, and resurrection, freedom is available to the world. He's the light of the nations, he's salvation for everybody, and he's the judge of the world, as people take their stand for him, or against him. All that and more wrapped up in this child. Well, how do we conclude? I want to make three brief observations about our consideration of this text. First, to ask the question, and then look into the new year. Is our understanding of Jesus the same as Simeon's and Luke's? Do we see Jesus in these terms? As we look at this baby, do we see what Simeon saw? Because if we see what Simeon saw, 
I think we, we must do what Simeon did. And that is, take this baby Jesus up in our arms. Of course, you can't do that physically and literally as Simeon did. But metaphorically, we can. We want to say, I want him as my Savior. He is the salvation of God. We can reach out our arms and grasp him to ourselves. Well, we can thank God for him, but I want to commend him to us all at the turn of the year. Whatever guilt feelings we may have as we look back to the past year, we can bring uh, as an assurance, he can bring you as an assurance of his forgiveness. Whatever challenges face you in the new year, and you won't know them all yet, he can give you strength and meet, to meet and to face them. Secondly, if you're one who has chosen to receive, to embrace this Jesus, do you, like Anna and Simeon, steep yourself in God's word? Does your devotion involve the daily feeding on the scriptures? It's vital, literally, to the sustaining of your spiritual health. Jesus said, we do not live by physical food alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The psalmist said, your, lamp, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. It's through his word that the Holy Spirit teaches, comforts, guides, and corrects us as we seek to grow in maturity and in the likeness of Jesus. This committed discipline of daily reading of the scriptures and prayer is what John Stott used to refer to alliteratively as the dogged daily discipline of personal devotions. If this has not been your practice as a Christian, perhaps the first day of a new year is a good time to start. Not merely a new year's, but a rest-of-your-life resolution. If you need a place to start, you might pick up a copy of the current Anglican Planet and read the article on page 10 by Sue Careless, entitled, I Resolve by God's Grace to Read the Bible Every Day. And then follow the outline she provides for daily scripture readings for the, for, for the three months uh, through until Easter. Well, that's a place to start. And finally, have you, like Simeon, faced the certainty of your mortality and death? I wonder, uh, whenever that the day comes, if we shall be able to say with Simeon, Sovereign Lord, now dismiss your servant in peace, because my eyes have seen your salvation. In other words, I am quite ready to leave this life behind, because I have embraced Christ as his eternal salvation. To a correspondent who expressed some fear in facing the reality of death, C.S. Lewis wrote, Has this world been so kind to you that you should leave with regret? There are better things ahead than we leave behind. Let's pray.